normally we're all walking around like a dirty glass of water. And debris is spinning around. And the more active and thinking and stuff we do, that debris just keeps swirling and we can never see clearly through it. But if we sit and we cultivate, that debris will sink to the bottom of the glass and then we can see right through it and we see everything clearly. We can tell you what's on the other side. That is cultivating, getting that clarity. And that's why Taoism is two big things, clarity, tranquility. And when we get clarity, it means our spirit is strong. With tranquility, our chi is strong. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Stuart Alvey Olson found an interest in Chinese philosophy as a teenager. In his late 20s, he began his formal training in ancient Eastern practices that continues today, more than 40 years later. His deep education in Taoism and Buddhism have helped give him fodder to author nearly 40 books and to teach students around the world. As you will soon hear, Stuart is a gifted storyteller, and this episode is full of ancient parables, teachings from his mentor, lessons from people he has encountered, and humorous anecdotes. We begin with an account of his multi-year bowing pilgrimage that crossed many U.S. states, was replete with personal insights, and provided sagely advice from the most unexpected people and places. We explore the concept of inner alchemy through the lens of Taoist and Buddhist parables, discuss Stuart's books, and delve into his lessons from life. We also chat about his relationship and mentorship with Master T.T. Leong, with whom he studied with for much of his adult life until his master's death. This discussion includes a look at the concepts of longevity and immortality from an ancient Chinese lens. Stuart is the founder and director of the Sanctuary of Tao, where he offers his virtual mentor program on inner alchemy. He is also co-founder of Valley Spirit Arts, a publishing company where you can find Stuart's books, including the gem Actions and Retributions. To me, Stuart brings to mind an image of a happy sage or monk. His sense of humor, candor, and wisdom all help to make a very enjoyable and special conversation from which I hope you benefit as much as I have. Humbleness is something he experienced on his bowing pilgrimage, and all these years later, he continues to exhibit in his actions and way of being. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Stuart Alvey Olson. Stuart, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm happy to have you here. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Before we jump into Taoism, which is how I know of you and the work that I know of you, can you maybe speak of something else in your life that you are passionate about? Other than Taoism? Other than Taoism. Well... That's difficult because, <laughs> well, seriously, because it's like um, I've been at this dealing with this subject of Taoism for a very long time. Uh, my whole, you know, kind of background, you know, I lived with uh, Master Titi Leong 
for many years. And I was in a Buddhist monastery for I think nine months, 10 months, portion of my life. Spent two and a half years on a bowing pilgrimage. So when I say, you know, my other passions, uh, they're all within this in one way or another. I mean, whether it's Tai Chi or certain things, but mostly writing. Uh, you know, and I, I got into this at a very early age. And, you know, my joke is that it's kind of like in Scarface, you know, when he talks about, you know, trying to leave the mafia and every time he did, it pulled him right back in. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, there was a point in my life where I wanted to be a pilot, you know, and I went to pilot training school and all that stuff. But I didn't realize I was, you know, taking on the most expensive hobby in the world. <laughs> um, but no, I, uh, you know, I've just, this has been my life and I'm a very lucky person. You know, it's that old saying, if you, if you love your work, then you're, you've never worked a day in your life. And I kind of feel that way. I mean, I just love the things that I do, the people I get to meet, uh, the whole subject matter. It's just, you know, I don't really have anything outside of this stuff, you know, uh, that creates any great passion for me. Um, this stuff does. And I love, you know, I guess if I had to quote, it would be, I love having written. <laughs> the, the process of writing can be, <laughs> yes. you know, having getting it done feels great uh, you know and I, I uh, it, it and my writing kind of started out as kind of a little bit of a joke because Master Leon had a book and I told him that I would write 50 and because you know, I wanted to start small I, I wanted to do outdo him <laughs> and uh, so yeah, and I've just about done that. So uh, I think that's incredible. Right, I think I'm somewhere around forty. I don't know exactly, but um, but all of these things, everything I've done, you know, uh, any book that I've done, honestly, is a book I wish I had had when I was learning it. That's how I kind of approached everything. It's like, uh, you know. Uh, like, you know, the book that I think we'll be discussing here a little bit, Actions and Retributions. Yes. You know, I uh, I wish I had had that book initially when I started getting interested in a lot of this. Uh, it would have been very helpful. So I'm kind of like I've been writing for myself, basically, because uh, that's it's all the stuff that I'm interested in. And... I don't know. I don't, I can't, if you ask me why, I really can't tell you other than karma. You know, I, I remember when I was 16, my girlfriend bought me for the strangest reasons, the Yi Jing book by uh, <laughs> Wilhelm Baines. I didn't understand anything about the Yi Jing. What I liked was, is when I opened up the book, there were cool statements like, let your magic tortoise fly you know, dragons and all of this stuff. And I'm going, wow, that's cool, you know. And I 
read through, I, but I never really understood that much. And then interesting enough, uh, later on, my younger brother for a Christmas present, he bought me uh, Dalu's Taoist Health Exercise Book. Uh, and I don't, to this day, I never know why he thought I would want that book. But, you know, and, you know, being brothers, I'm sure he got it cheap. So that's why I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, but it was interesting because when that book came out, my teacher was living with Dalu in New York. And it just kind of snowballed from there with different meeting different people. Uh and getting involved in this kind of world. So I don't, I don't have a reasonable explanation other than karma. Mm -hmm. You know, it's where I'm supposed to be, I guess. Yeah, um, well, it seems like you've certainly found your path and why deviate well, from that, right? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of bumps on that path, but you know, it's... I, I never like to think of paths as something so smooth and easy. They're, yes. not, they're usually pretty difficult. So, Can you talk a bit about the bowing pilgrimage that you did? Oh, well, yeah. Speaking of an unsmooth path, I can't imagine that having been very smooth. Well, the thing about it is there's a few stories I want to tell within that. It's, when I was at the monastery, City of 10,000 Buddhas, there were uh, monks bowing, taking three steps in a bow. They went from uh, Los Angeles up to the city of 10,000 Buddhas. And before them, there was another group of monks that went up to Seattle. And I'm being, you know, uh, I just, I admired that. And I decided that I wanted to bow out of Minneapolis, uh, I went back uh, to Minneapolis. And, but being a layperson, I did uh, nine steps and one bow. That's kind of the tradition. Mm, Monks okay. would do three steps. I did nine. Um, and, it, you know, and I said I was doing it for world peace. That was my arrogant side, uh, truthfully. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of like if... And I never wrote a book about it. Uh, and I don't know that I will, because I know that if I do, the title has to be Spiritual Olympics, hmm. because that's how I kind of felt. I mean, I'm out there doing this thing that I know nobody else could or want to do. It's very difficult. You know, you're eating once a day. You're never laying down to sleep. You have to you know, sleep upright. All these things I did. And I, I said it was for world peace. And I stopped bowing shortly after this man in this old, stinky, loud car, this farmer kind of guy with a big beard and a big dog next to him. And he pulled up on the other side of the road and he said to me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm bowing. And he said, for what? With a really gruffy voice. <laughs> and I said, for world peace. And he said to me, who said it wasn't peaceful? Hmm. And I figured out, yeah, I'm the one saying it. Uh, you know, and I, yeah, after two and a half years, I, I got through just to the border of uh, Nebraska coming out of South Dakota. And that's when I decided to stop. Uh, and it was interesting. I mean, 
I had never done anything that uh, I would say was more uh, enlightening. But at the same token, uh, I have a difficult time sitting down writing a book about it because uh, I don't want it to become uh, some kind of you know feather in my cap, so to speak. I, I want to leave that alone. This was, it was really personal, but all the things that I went through and I just don't, I, and I don't want to kind of give the idea that this is what people have to do to have a spiritual life. No, you can stay at home. You don't need to be out there in the gravel. Uh, you know, in some ways I looked at it, I was showing off. I mean, that, that was a really big effort. And, but I don't want people to think that's what they have to do and not, you know, and, and part of this too is there's a story within this. I, I, there was a, a point in this where a guy that would periodically come in and visit me was a, uh, a former Jesuit priest and he had like seven PhD. I mean, he's really, he worked for the Dalai Lama and he, you know, did all this stuff with uh, Greenpeace and really nice man. And he'd come out and talk with me periodically. And he, well, one time he brought, with, he brought a Geo magazine with him. And in it was an article about a Japanese monk in Japan at the same time doing the same thing I'm doing. And in it, there's a great story because the writer who writes this talks about this woman who sees this monk out there bowing. And he's all dirty and he's, you know, and I, I could relate to all of this because, you know, you're not like the, you know, a slave to fashion when you're out there. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so she, she walks up to him and she asks him what he's doing. He's, he says he's bowing, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and he's dirty and he's, you know, has nothing. And she, and he said, well, why are you doing this? And the monk said, uh, because I'm grateful. And the woman said, grateful for what? You know, looking at him. And he said, ultimately nothing, but it's a great state of mind. And that really struck me because, you know, it's kind of like we forget that sometimes, that we should have this kind of sense of gratitude about our lives. And, you know, by the mere fact that you know, like you and I get to talk about this stuff. We should be grateful for that because a lot of people are stuck talking about auto mechanics and <laughs> other things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, that's their life. Which I'm know. sure appeals to some. Yeah, I'm sure it does. But nonetheless, yeah. uh, I, I just look at the fact that we get where, you know, mm -hmm. what you do and what I do gives us the opportunity to explore something deeper about ourselves. Yes. And we're lucky for that. Are you willing to share any of the enlightenments that came to you during the pilgrimage? Well, I, I, I tend to shy away from that word enlightenment. Okay. Well, and the reason I shy away from it is because Buddha himself uh, kind of poo-pooed it. <laughs> I mean, he says in the Lotus Sutra, when he's trying to explain what enlightenment is, he says, it's kind of like being on outside of a house. 
and you see this house is catching fire and you see all these children inside and you want to save the children but you know if you scream out fire they're going to panic and probably get hurt and there'll be all sorts of bad repercussions from it so he creates what you know in analogy these three carts behind him filled with wonderful things and he tells the children if you come out slowly quietly and just walk out I will give you guys all these carts. And so the children do what they, the Buddha requests and they all walk out towards the carts. And once they're all out safely, the Buddha says, turn around. And they all turn and they see the house from the fire crashing in. He said, that's enlightenment. So, when I when so the reason I shy away from the word is I don't know that I really like the word because it implies something. Well, the first thing it does that I don't like is that it it, it kind of gives a superior inferior kind of equation to people that somehow if you're enlightened you're better. And I've met lots of people that you would say would be enlightened, but I don't consider them any better than any other human being. Uh, the other thing is, is that uh, enlightened to what? I mean, that's, there's a lot of things. Yes, I can say when I was bowing, I got enlightened to a lot of what I would call just human nature. In the people that I dealt with while I was bowing allowed me to see things that uh, I never, you know, here was the thing. I mean, one of the biggest things was, is as I was bowing, I thought when I went on this, that I would have trouble with people, you know, like police and, you know, religious people. It turns out policemen were my best friends. I found that they, a lot of them really take that idea of peace officer literally. And they loved, I mean, they would bring me, because I only ate once a day, but they'd come out and they'd bring me lunch and sit and talk with me. I had chief of police of several towns come out and just sit, want to hang out and talk. Uh, Catholics were the best. I think they really understood <laughs> this whole thing that I was doing uh, better than most. Uh, yeah, I had some instances with religious people that weren't so much fun but you know I had uh, I had gruffy old men sitting on the side of the road crying and you know people that it, it's really weird to or difficult to explain a man that was in World War II had to shoot and kill many people and then this kid me coming along bowing for world peace had such a deep effect on him and and other people it wasn't just him it was many many others and it, it struck me it was call it an enlightenment if you wish but i really discovered how people inside inside themselves no matter what their background for the most part are looking for peace and I don't mean world peace, I mean personal peace. You know, and I, I remember once going through this small town and there was a, a little, I was going by a park and I was just bowing and there was this young girl sitting on a park bench. 
and she was sobbing. And, and so I stopped and I walked over and I go, are you okay? And she goes, yeah. And I said, well, you know, what's, why are you crying? And she said to me, you are the first person I ever saw that I thought for the first time really cared about this world. And now I don't, I'm not saying that that's even true of me. It's what she saw <laughs> in just my action of this kind of slowness, this methodical, you know, because come on, I'd, I'd make, I'd be lucky to make, you know, half a mile a day. Wow. Yeah. You know, and so people, you know, normally people see people rushing through everything. Here I am, you know, uh, I'm slow, I'm methodical, I'm just there. Everybody gets to see me. Uh, I got, had wonderful conversations with ministers, you know. In fact, a minister's kid came out uh, and he came up to me and he bowed right in front of me just as I was bowing and he gave me a quarter. And I'm going, well, why are you giving me this? He goes, because I want you to get some food. I mean, he's only like seven or eight years old, but his parents and his father was a minister. He said, he saw you on TV. I didn't know I'd been on TV, but he said, dad, we got to go make sure he gets food. You know, and, it, and his father said, I've never seen him react like this. You know, we've had lots of ministers and people come through our church and stuff. But he said, this is the first time that my son was affected by seeing a kind of spiritual person. And he actually bowed. He goes, we never taught our son to bow. He just came out and bowed. So there were things that happened within it that I don't necessarily credit myself with, but I do see you know, how it affected. Because uh, I know how I was affected when I learned about these monks bowing. And there's nothing tangible I can say about that other than I think bowing in and of itself is an act of getting rid of arrogance. Because we have to, we're, we're humbling ourselves, we're submitting to something by that mere act of bowing. I, I finally you know, understood why people did bowing you know, sessions where they go all day long. Uh, but it, it, it did lend me that thought that what I'm doing is getting rid of my arrogance because I knew I had plenty of it, you know, excess actually. So this kind of whole thing was the enlightenment for me was really understanding my kind of ego about my life. And it really helped shatter it. Um, you know, I buried dead animals along the way, which is not fun. But after a while, you start seeing how much <laughs> death there is. I mean, roadkill, unless you're bowing down a road, you just have no idea how much there is, you know. And, uh, but it was, it was fascinating because I got to have conversations with people that normally I'd never get to talk to. I loved when these older farmers would come out and sit down with me, you know, and just, you know, talk with me. And I mean, there was, a, there was humor too. I mean, there was one where the, this guy came out and said, when you get up at the end of this intersection, the crossroads, I have a restaurant, you come in and you just get whatever you want. 
never met him before, didn't know why he liked me so much. But I get into this restaurant and I'm not gonna eat because it's already past noon, but I'm gonna get some water. And when I walk in, there's all these farmers and these women and you know, people hanging out in there. And the guy, the owner, he's behind the counter. He goes, he goes, I just gotta ask you, why in the hell are you doing this? And I looked at him and being who I am, I just said, well, it's a lot easier than being married. <laughs> and the whole place cracked up. And they all, they, and it was really fun because then they started, uh, you know, I was treated really well. The mayor would came out and he brought me lunch the next day. And, you know, people that I never would have suspected uh, would have had or felt comfortable with this guy in Buddhist robes and a bald head bowing down their road, uh, turned out I thought I would have just been treated as somebody totally insane. But instead, people were far better than I ever, ever anticipated. And they were far more uh, what I would call sensitive and enlightened. They really kind of understood and like one guy even, you know, well, many, not just one, but said, God, I wish I could do something like this. You know, I had this guy from a construction unit get off his big uh, tractor and he walked over to me and he goes, he goes, I heard about you. He goes, I don't agree with your religion, but he said, I admire the hell out of you for what you're doing. And that took guts, you know, to for yeah. him to even do that. And I... I, I, that whole bowing pilgrimage kind of renewed my sense of humanity. Uh, you know, because one of the things that kind of, I, it, it's hard for me to make the real connection to this, but, you know, when I was at the monastery, there was a, a woman from the Hopi tribe, Oshina. She came up for a week and gave talks and different things. And one of the things that she talked about was in the Hopi religion, that their highest ideal, they call it a good human being. That's the highest you can get, to be a good human being. To them, that's everything, which is really unique because later on, as I started translating Taoism, the highest ideal is to be a true person, a chandran but you can literally translate that as a true human. So that whole thing kind of, you know, the whole idea of cultivating and going through things, just like when we talk about actions and retributions, that whole text is about being a good human being. Now, we're not perfect at it. None of us are. And I think we should get over the idea that we will be. And I've known lots of, and I've met really incredibly skilled people in this field. They all had flaws, every one of them. I know I have mine. And I, so this idea of looking at people from perfection is not only misleading, it's kind of uh, harmful to us because to be human, means we have to have some flaws in us. And that even the most spiritually gifted people 
are going to have something in there because they were brought up in this world. They get they have prejudices and judgments and different things. Um, so I I don't know. I just I have to look at this. You know, it's getting back to your question about the bowing. I realized that I was out there trying to be a good human. It was a very extreme, you know, kind of methodology to do that, you know. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it's something that um, I felt I had to do. You know, uh, was I successful? I don't know, but I wasn't looking for success. That's the other part of that. I didn't really, you know, yeah, if, if I could have, I would have went all the way to California, but I didn't. You know, uh, but that's just what it was for what it was. Uh, and I don't know. I just, uh, I, I think it was a really great thing to do for me, but I'm not going to sit here and say everybody should do it. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't do that. So. Well, it sounds like an incredible journey, and it does sound like you were successful in impacting the lives of others. And so maybe I hope so. That but. sounds like a success to me from that part of it. How do you think, or how did you go from a teenager being given the I Ching and your brother giving you another book? How did that evolve into what your life has become? Um, well, let's go back a little bit. When I was very young, like I think a lot of younger people, I used to go out of my body a great deal when I was young and I didn't like it. Things I saw scared me. Probably the scariest one was, I think I was 11 and I fell out of bed. And when I went to pick up myself and get back in, I was staring at me. And I did not like that. I mean, it, and it was, there was just these sensations. Yeah. Of leaving and coming back sometimes that were very harsh. And fortunately, I had a friend, my best friend at that time. His brother was older, and his brother was one of these hippie guys at the University of Minnesota. But he had studied things about Tibetan Buddhism, and my friend Bob had mentioned it to him about this these experiences I was having. He goes, and his brother said, that's astral projection, you know, and he went and he got me some Tibetan books to read that talked about astral projection. And when I read them, I went, that's me, right? It at least answered the questions rather than me feeling like uh, I need to be put away somewhere or <laughs> something else is wrong. So th these books were explaining uh, very well to me what I was experiencing. And I, so I read a little bit about Tibetan Buddhism, but you know, like any other young man, I was more interested in things like baseball and girls and all of that stuff. You know, I wasn't terribly bent on being spiritual, even though I did, I remember having thoughts and maybe I should be a minister when I grow up, you know, but my minister who was really a cool guy, he just looked at me, he goes, no, no, you're, you're not meant to be a Christian minister. You have other things. He really liked me. He had admired me and things, but uh, he was wise enough to know that's not where I belonged. Uh, 
so, but yeah, I'm not too sure. Yeah, you know, how do you define, you know, the way that I look at it? I look at these things as things that are connected to some type of past life, seriously. And I come back and I, you know, I like this idea of, you know, in, like in Taoism, they explain it. You leave this world and the only thing you take with you are your insights, not your memories, not, none of that. You just, your, your insight. And that is what kind of leads your karma. So when you have a rebirth, you come back with insight. And that, you know, why, how else can I explain somebody like Mozart? How do you get somebody that comes back and at an early age is giving concerts to the emperors? You know, he's gifted beyond measure. I mean, there, there's, there's gotta be an explanation for very gifted people. They don't study anything necessarily. You know, and I've had teachers that were born, you know, like Xuanhua, the city of 10,000 Buddhas. I mean, when he was little, he would take incense and run out behind his house and offer incense, you know, to all the Buddhas. You know, you don't just get that. You know, it's not like they went to a class. And I look at it from my stuff too, is that uh, there was an interest and it had to do with, I'm just saying, and I'm not trying to make a big thing of this, but there's like, there's an endowment, something that came with me that lended me to think and be attracted to these things, whether I liked it or not. And uh, I mean, I'm grateful for it, honestly, but uh, I, I don't have a, a clear answer as to why for my things, all I know is things always kind of uh, led me. You know, I was lucky I had a mother who was very Taoist, you know, and even though without, she never even heard the word, but she had a lot of Taoist ideas and, and mannerisms in her life uh, that greatly affected me. Uh, I met people that I honestly, I admired, you know, in their, for what they had done in their, their backgrounds. I, I never realized, you know, I remember being in Sunday school and they showed me a film about the monks in Japan underneath this big Buddha and they were collecting food. And the, but the premise of the film was these are greedy monks and they're deceiving the people. <laughs> And I remember listening to that. And as a kid, I'm going, no, that's not true. And I, because, and then I remember when this, because we had this really weird minister and he started giving us a talk about it. And I go, yeah, but you know, we bring food here too and you take it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, shut up. <laughs> so, but I remember the images of the monks really affected me. You know, I'm going, wow. There's, you know, how you're just kind of attracted to something. Yeah. And that's, was kind of my life was things kept kind of showing up, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like my best friend's, you know, brother showing up with books and Tibetan astral projection and, you know, all these different things. Yeah. 
I, there was just no way other way around it for me, you know? Well, I just, like that word that you used, endowment. It's especially fitting for you and being filled with the Tao. Well, let's hope I am. <laughs> How well, do you... I, I don't know. You got to be honest about that kind of stuff. Is yeah. You know, I don't want to have, you know, I, I really, there was a Taoist philosopher by the name of Yong Chu mm -hmm. that I just really loved. I, I can't wait to get the book out that I've been doing on him. You know, but they, you know, scholars have like labeled him as a hedonist and, you know, except here's the problem. Almost every great teacher, Zen and Taoist quotes the guy. <laughs> and, uh, but his big issue was pretense. He's just going, there's nothing worse than people who try to act like something they're not. And that really held true within the idea of these kind of spiritual things. And I think as a Taoist, you got to kind of shun that idea that, uh, that I've, I don't look at myself as a person of great accomplishments. You know, I, I look at myself as I've studied. Okay, I, I really got in and I studied Buddhism. And I still feel Buddhist. I just know I'm not a good one. I, I know enough about Buddhism to know I'm not a good Buddhist, but I like Buddhism. And I got attracted to Taoism simply because Taoism kind of had this idea that life is better when you appreciate it. See, in Buddhism, there's this thing where you're told life is suffering. And here's the way out of suffering. But the discussion is always about suffering. So in some ways, I saw Buddhism as kind of sad. You know, because everybody's suffering. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But Taoism is telling me, yeah, so what? Appreciate what you have. Yeah, we all we know life is suffering, but whoop-de-doo, big deal, basically is what it's saying. Let's get on with being this idea of gratitude and appreciation for life. I'm lucky to meet you. I'm lucky to have the friends I have. I should learn to appreciate all of that rather than focusing on everybody's suffering, including me. I just, I didn't want to, I, I understand Buddhism. I think it's a, a, a correct view of life. But I don't want to live with the thoughts of suffering. I'd rather live with thoughts of appreciation. I feel better. And there's also the thing is that I, and having lived, you know, kind of within that life, I like Taoism because Taoism teaches me to, as Lao Tzu says in the Tao Te Ching, do nothing to harm the body. Buddhism says, do nothing that gets you attached to the body. <laughs> so uh, there's a big difference there. And, you know, it's kind of like if when you read the old Zen books and Taoist books, there's this always a statement, first in the body, then in the mind, or first in the mind, then in the body. Well, Chan Buddhism, Zen, is first in the mind, and then as I put it, hopefully in the body hopefully we'll end up healthy and okay. In Taoism, it's first in the body. 
and then in your mind. Get your body together. But that's really deep in the sense of, and you know, okay, sorry to do this to you, but we're just chatting here. Yeah. Taoism, especially when you get into the area of what you call internal alchemy, starts out with the premise, and it's a truism. You are, for the most part, and me, we're water. Take the water element out of our bodies and we're dried bones and dried skin. There's nothing to us if you take out the moisture content of our body. We are like planet Earth. Earth is 80% water. I don't even know why we call it Earth. This should be planet water because there's far more of it, just like our bodies. So internal alchemy starts with this idea of what they call Jing. They have three treasures, Jing, Qi, and Shun. Well, Jing is the water element of our body. And, you know, a lot of people confuse that with thinking it has to do with sexual secretions. Yeah, that's part of it. But you're also blood. All your internal organs need fluids to function and they're constantly pulsing with different fluids. Our intestines, our whole bowel system re relies on fluids. We have marrow in our bones. We have hormones. We have sweat. We have tears. <sighs> on and on, and we also have the, the important one, which is the spinal fluids, which the old Taoist called sea of marrow. Sea being the key word, fluid, just like elixir, key word, but elixir is also fluid in meaning. So Taoism approaches this from the, the aspect of internal alchemy of first, generating and replenishing and rebuilding these fluids in our body because that's what's going to spark chi sorry to do this to you but we're also like as a human being we're like a, a car battery you got cells in that battery that have to be filled with water and then the copper which then creates a charge right so you can look at the battery the water element if there's no water in your battery, you got no power at all. It's over with. Keep the fluid in good order and you will have a charged battery. Well, we're kind of like that ourselves. And now we even know that's more true now because we've had a, there's a, a new discovery. I think it's about five years old where doctors now understand why acupuncture works. You can go to our website and see it. There's a whole study that was done on, there was a new organ discovered called the interstertium. And it's a watery uh, network right beneath our skin. That's why acupuncture needles only need to go skin deep to, to get to it. But our whole body is this like watery channels and they're connected with all these different centers. Western medicine can now see it clearly. They're going, yeah, this is why acupuncture works. So yeah, granted, Western uh, science and stuff has done some great work. Uh, you know, I'll talk about more of this later, but the idea of even immortality. I mean, what was it, 10 years ago? Again, we put all the research papers up to 
there was, they actually discovered a species of jellyfish that is absolutely immortal. Really? It's not, no, this is no joke. We, you can go look at the science papers. This is a big deal now in science because they can't, this, this jellyfish will age and then regenerate. It keeps doing it. It'll be immortal, I guess, as long as you don't step on it and eat it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it does, it is absolutely scientific fact. The jellyfish is immortal. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Uh, about five years before we got the, because one of my students is a biology uh, professor at ASU. He's the one that brought us the paper. But what was interesting is, and he brought it up to my attention, because in translating some work by Chan Sun Fung, an old Taoist immortal, at the end of his work, of this one text, he says, and it's about internal alchemy, he says, oh, but this is nothing more than the jellyfish method. Now, when I translated that, which was about 15 years ago, I'm sitting there going, what does he mean by this is the jellyfish method? I can't find anything that talks about a method of a jellyfish. Now, keep in mind, he said this 1,200 years ago. So when I get this paper that says there's jellyfish that are immortal i'm kind of blown away <laughs> yeah because <laughs> i'm going what, what, what's going on here how did he know 1200 years ago or Taoists? how did they know that there were jellyfish that were immortal so you know when, when you start really getting into Taoism, there are there's Again, because it is taking things of the body first. This is why there's acupuncture and herbs and et cetera, et cetera. They're all about helping our body preserve itself. You know, this idea of Ching, Chi, and Shun. These are the components that make you a human being. You know, Jing is your body, you know, the water elements and all the energies that go with that. Your chi is the energy that allows you to do this. It animates you. It gives you body heat. So your body has motion and heat. And then you get your shun, which makes your body conscious. You have a consciousness, a thinking mind. You know? And so Taoists were incredibly intuitive about what's going on with us as human beings. And I don't really like, you know, I'll say this. Most Taoist scriptures and texts, they're bulleted lists. These are things that teachers wrote for their disciples. And they were usually written in language that only their school could understand. It was a protectionism. You see it all throughout China. You know, like in like a family that knew martial art would not teach the daughters because they know she would get married and maybe she'd teach it to another family and then they would attack them. I mean, these were all, this is their insurance policies. And so when you start thinking about these texts, they are written kind of in mystical cryptic language. 
See, I could sit and teach people about internal alchemy and I'd say, okay, what we have to do is unite the three-legged crow in the sun along with the jade rabbit in the moon. <laughs> now, where would you be with that? <laughs> Nowhere. You would get nothing from that. So the language, but that Taoist disciple of that teacher would go, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. The Ching and the Chi. And then there'd be a whole list of things underneath that that they would understand. Uh, so I kind of look at these things because it's something Master Leong instilled in me. He said, if you can't explain what you're doing to a waitress, a ditch digger, the common person, you haven't done your job. Don't, don't feed people with a lot of mystical terminology or academics or any of that. He said, talk plainly, and let people understand what it is. And that's what I've been trying to do with a lot of Taoism. And I think it's, you know, not, hopefully this doesn't come off as arrogant, but you know, if I'm if I'm lauded for anything in the work that I've done, it's my explanation of things. You know, people like the fact that I don't just translate something, I go in and explain it. You know, and that's partly like Xuan Hua told me too. He said, you know, translating a spiritual text and handing it to people and asking them to understand it is like giving an ant a watermelon and tell them to chew it in one bite. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. It has to be explained. And it also has to be explained in a language that that person will understand. Just like you and I. If we go to a doctor and that doctor uses nothing but medical language, we walk out scratching our heads. We don't really know what he said or didn't say really clearly. But if it's all broken down into our language and our understanding, then we'll get it. You know, it and I, I've you know, I got lots and lots of doctor friends and students. And yeah, you know, I, I find myself telling them no English <laughs> yeah. let's, let's use the language we use and and that's what Taoism needs to survive you know I love you know like I'll just say this there's a, a guy that I runs a thing called Golden Elixir I've never met him but uh, his name is Frabazio Priorgado or something he translates lots of internal alchemy books and he does a great job he's a great translator really like the guy he's a good academic most academics i don't and i like them personally but you know uh their their work is it's too much for the average person to sit down and read it and figure it out between the citations and <laughs> the language it usually leaves us feeling pretty dry or tired or we fall asleep when we read it uh, and I, I think that you have to and especially because I love Taoism so much, I want, I want to give it a feel that, you know, sometimes I succeed, sometimes maybe not. But I like the idea that I'm trying to put it into words, you know, that, because that's, that's what I got. I got to live with Master Leon. And so we, you know, I was able to get, you know, in a, really nice way explanations of things because I was 
kind of dumb. So every time he said something, I go, what? <laughs> no, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? And it just kept going and going uh, to where, you know, we broke it down into what would be, I'd say, good English for me to get an understanding of what he was talking about. Because there's nothing worse than somebody saying to you, oh, you have to cultivate your chi and focus on your dantian. Well, what the hell does that really mean? I mean, <laughs> I have yeah. to be realistic here, you know, because there's a lot of people that, you know, go to, let's say, a Zen center and sit there and breathe in their dantian, but they don't last long. There's right. like an expiration date on all of them. <laughs> well, I... Truly think in actions and retributions, your narrative is, as you say, it adds such tremendous value to the book and it makes it something that is relevant and practical. It was and, one uh, of my favorite books. Well, it, it's, I, I was, well, I'm not, I guess I should say, I, I wasn't shocked about how relevant it is to today's world because everything I read about Taoism I find is completely yeah. relevant to modern day problems and concerns and yeah. actions and retributions was certainly that. And it's, it's a treatise that speaks of things that were happening a millennia ago that are still happening today that are still important for us to be mindful of. Yeah. I think if a person goes through the whole thing, they get a, really good sense of Taoism and a good sense of how to be a good human being. But the book also does something else that is kind of indicative of Taoism. Most scriptures, if you read the first verse, pretty much tells you everything. So like in this action retribution, the first verse is saying basically in paraphrase, there's no such, you know, all your, what you would call your misfortunes in your life, you, you're the one that brought them in. I mean, it's saying it very clearly. That's your doing. Don't be blaming gods and spirits and demons and everything else for your troubles. You did it. And I like that it put it right in my lap immediately. You know, that, yeah, uh, I can't sit here and uh, kind of, treat the world like it owes me something you know i i did it you know and, and you know the Tao de jing you know the first line the the way that can be spoken of is not the eternal way well yeah and then he writes five thousand words later to explain it <laughs> what, is, <laughs> yep. what he just said in that first verse the yin the yin convergence scripture starts out with where it says contemplate nature imitate nature all is done and then there's a whole bunch of words to kind of explain that. So Taoism starts out, and most of the scriptures start out with uh, these incredible verses that if you just look at them and, and study them, they're telling you so much. But this, this book really does do that. It does, and it, it starts by misfortune and fortune have no special gates. Yes. Which yeah. is yeah so profound yeah. and... And I believe it is. you wrote in, in your narrative of that is what are we, why are we always trying to close the gate to bad things yeah. and open the gate to good things when there are no gates? Yeah. 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 And it's, and that's what one of the things I love about Taoism too, is that it, 
it kind of goes to this thing that you should learn to equally accept the good and bad in your life. And that meant a lot to me because, you know, and as we all do, we all go through life and we lose people that we love. Like, you know, I had a, a girlfriend that, uh, you know, got killed. I lost my mother, which was traumatic kind of for me and losing Master Leon. So there's these people that were very special to me in my life and I lose them. And I've got, you know, it, it was interesting because you got to have to learn that these aren't, you know, necessarily bad things that I made happen or anybody else happened. It's a thing called life and it's going to happen. And we have to learn to accept that doesn't mean we don't grieve. I mean, that's one of the misnomers about a lot of these spiritual practices is that we look at emotion as something terrible. Taoism doesn't, what Taoism does is it says, okay, you got these seven emotions. If you let them get to the extreme, they're gonna cause you harm. If you regulate them, they will create merit. So it's good to love. It's good sometimes to be angry, you know? And it's it just, but the emotions, as long as one is ruling them with the idea, three Taoist principles of, you know, what they call non-interference, non-contention, and non-conformity. So if you think about like non-interference, well, yeah, we usually get into people's lives more than we should. We're always kind of judging and telling people how they should behave. Dallas thinks that's ridiculous, but there's a difference. You know, people could take that to the extreme. Meaning if I saw someone being attacked or abused, of course I would want to go in and help, but that's called protection. That's a whole different subject. That's not interfering. You're protecting life. You know, uh, non-contention. Yeah, we always find can find reasons to argue and think that my dog is shinier than your dog. You know, even in Taoism, I find it, you know, people that, oh, this guy knows this and blah. It's all nonsense. You know, we're all just trying to follow a way that, you know, nobody's better or worse, etc. Then there's nonconformity, which that's an interesting one. It doesn't mean that you just purposely don't do things that other people do. It means nonconformity really means to find your way. You know, if your family says, Todd, you have to be a doctor. I don't want you doing this radio stuff. And you go, no, doing this is what I want to do. And it makes me happy. That's nonconformity. You just do what you know is good for you. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, it does not matter. We have to go with what we feel is right for us. And so that's what Taoism claims to be nonconformity. You know, and, and there's a really cute little story in Taoism about that that I think you'll like. Go for there's it. A, there's these people in a village that hear about this master who lives up in this little cabin up at the top of the mountain. And they decide that they have to go speak to him because this guy supposedly has all this wisdom 
and they want to go up and meet him and ask questions, etc. But when they get there and they knock on the door, this old Taoist guy is standing there naked. And the woman kind of freaks out and she says, Master, why are you standing there naked? And, and his response was really clever. He said, he said, well, first of all, he said, my house is the world. This building is my underwear. The question is, what are you doing in my underwear? <laughs> <laughs> and, but that whole context, that story goes further uh, in the sense that he points out to them that, you know, like you and I, we could sit here and say, I was born in such a town in such a state, right? Whereas this old Dallas goes, no. And this comes up in the yellow court scripture too, where you, no, first and foremost, you were born in the Milky Way. That gives us a whole different sense of who we are when you think about that. Instead of saying, oh, I come from Minneapolis, Minnesota, to say, no, I'm actually, I was born in the Milky Way. That should be on our driver's license. <laughs> uh, simply because it gives us a, a greater sense of ourselves in this world, that we are not just, um, you know, I think when we try to define it the way that we do, it, it lends itself to more egotistical thinking. Whereas if we become, if we are an actual citizen of our galaxy, and I know that sounds kind of far-fetched, but really it gives you a, a different sense because you know, normally we never think that way. We never think that broadly about who we are and what we are and our, our consciousness. It's as big as the galaxy. You know, as the yin convergence says, everything is mind, everything. And therefore, I, these are things about Taoism that really got me hooked, so to speak, on its kind of philosophical outlook on things. Uh, you know, and like, again, you know, going back to actions, retributions, taking it down to the micro. I mean, there's a whole thing in there, and I'm sure you read it about these three Hun spirits yep. and these nine worms. Isn't it interesting? 1,200 years ago, they're describing basically viruses. Yep. And with depictions of them. Yes. And there's one, uh, there's a couple that look just like cancer cells. Yeah. And how they knew that, I'll, I'll just, it's beyond me. Mm -hmm. But I understand, you know, that philosophy, because we can sit here and use modern day, say, you know, medical terms or psychological terms, you know, the, the psychosis and blah, blah, blah. You know, and here, Taoism, it's the same thing, only the terminology is different. They're calling them uh, basically demons, things of that nature. But the meaning is the same we still have these problems. Uh, so no matter what kind of semantics you use with it, uh, you know, yeah, we can say cancer, but they might've said, you know, the white worm, you know, I mean, they had their, right. they had their language for it. Well, cancer is the crab and yeah, the crab. language, yeah. so. Yeah, so I don't, you know, I just look at these things as, uh, I just think that their their abilities to intuit. I mean, we have to be realistic about this. 
you know, I look at Western medicine. I like a lot of it. I think it's really helped people, etc. But it's also done a lot of other things that I think are kind of harmful. Uh, but if you look at it, um, you know, we're always saying, well, Western medicine has validated or Western science has validated this thing out of Asia. You know, but these people knew this stuff three, 4,000 years ago. <laughs> why, aren't, why aren't they validating us? Yeah. It should be the other way around. Uh, and it's kind of disturbing. And, you know, we have this day and age that we live in where, you know, just give people an idea what's going, because most people don't get to hear this, but, you know, we have this thing called pharmaceuticals and they're wonderful. They really do work in most cases, there's, but there's a problem. Pharmaceuticals are designed to be really, really powerful. So when we take them, we immediately get a reaction to them. But the problem is they don't allow our body to assimilate them. So if we take them over a long period of time, they start doing damage, you know? And yeah, you know, like there's a, there's a pharmaceutical called lisinopril that you can take for the idea of keeping your kidneys and your blood pressure, et cetera, all in order. They give it to heart patients. Problem is, if you take it for more than a year, you'll start having trouble swallowing. I mean, it gets really bad. Mm -hmm. And doctors normally don't take you off of it because, well, it has to do with money. But the difference now is when you get into like Dow's and they start talking about herbs, you take these very small amounts of herbs and you take them daily, but don't expect a result for at least three to six months because herbs, they're designed to give you this kind of assimilation that your body adjusts to over time. And then those herbs have a wonderful effect on you. And what also people forget is that there's herbs that are, they classify them as, um, as, as food. So like you take uh, uh, Hoshu Wu, or you take Wang Jing, ginseng, uh, you know, Lingjie, these different types of uh, herbs, they're actually classified in, in Chinese herbology as food because they're, they're, they have nutrients and we can live off of herbs. Can't live off pharmaceuticals, but no. you can live off herbs. Yeah. So I did that book, The Immortal, The 250-Year-Old Man, which is, a, we could have a whole discussion just on him, but the idea behind that was, is here's a guy, you know, people say, oh, did he really live to be 250 and how can I do that? I'm going, well, first of all, you can't. Let's get straight. <laughs> Well, because here's a guy that he's 10 years old and his parents give him permission to go off with these three herbalists. He lives in nature. He's eating super uh, organic. He's drinking mountain stream water. He's learning all these Taoist exercises with these guys. He's walking every day. He never in his life took a pharmaceutical. He never went to a hospital. He never had an injury. And he basically ate, you know, from nature. Of course, you're going to live longer. Of course, it isn't. That isn't rocket science. Look at us today, you know, and 
you know, like my big thing about why people should practice internal alchemy is, you know, what Master Leong instilled in me is the idea of not just the health and longevity, et cetera, all those things we talked about, but more importantly, like Master Leong put it, it's how you're going to die. And we forget this. See, we live in a society that kind of fears death. We have a lot of things like, you know, trying to medicines, et cetera, trying to get us not to die. And, but the problem with that, with our kind of approach is that, you know, we, we're treating our, our body like a car and we drive it until it breaks down. We take it into the garage and get it fixed. That's, you know, basically what we're taking our old car in, say, come on, make it run again. And whereas, you know, Taoism is more what you call preventative. It's trying to get us to do things that will prevent these bad things from happening. But when it comes to death, you know, Taoism doesn't, uh, there's two sides in Taoism. There's a side that says you'll live forever, you know, blah, 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 that kind of, you know, idea of immortality where you, you know, you, you're going to remain your age or younger for eternity. I've never met anybody that did that, so I can't talk to it. The other side is they talk about it in terms of spiritual immortality. And that's where we cultivate ourselves so that when we do pass from this world, our spirit is strong enough to go where it wants to go. And I know this, you know, I went through this with Master Leon. He clearly defined to me once where he was going to go and when, you know, and he, like uh, and a few other teachers I've known, you know, uh, like TT, he took a bath, put on his new pajamas, sat up in his bed and passed away. This woman in Taiwan, the neighbor later, neighbor lady found her with her head up against the wall while she was sitting cross-legged on her meditation mat. She died during meditation. Other teachers dying in similar, really calm, easy ways. But that's not true for all of us. Most of us will die under the thing of a 911 call, panic, people crying. You know, there's frustration. You got medics and people around you. You know, and the sad part is, you know, we, we urinate and defecate if we're panicked with our death. It's not pleasant. And we don't know where we're going. So as TT put it to me, cultivating, especially with what is designed within Taoism, is to ensure that we have this really good death because our spirit has so much clarity, it can see and know where it wants to go. And the way they describe that is, normally we're all walking around, we're like a dirty glass of water. And debris is spinning around and the more active and, and thinking and stuff we do, that debris just keeps swirling and we can never see clearly through it. But if we sit and we cultivate, that debris will sink to the bottom of the glass and then we can see right through it and we see everything clearly. We can tell you what's on the other side. That is cultivating, getting that clarity. And that's why Taoism it's two big things, clarity, tranquility. 
And when we get clarity, it means our spirit is strong. With tranquility, our chi is strong. So, and in fact, they even say, you don't really get chi unless you, everything quiets down. So it's a big story, but uh, it, it's all of these things are what really got me. I, I, I grew excited. Every time I went through a Taoist text, I'd get more and more excited about where that was going to, what it was talking about. Uh, because I think it's, in, in general, I wish, I wish they were teaching this stuff in high school. Yeah, wouldn't I, that I, be amazing? Yeah, well, I just think children, I know for me, it would have helped me make some better decisions earlier in my life had I had Taoism sitting in front of me. Um, yes, I, I can't imagine. And the whole teaching of Taoism, the premise basically being cultivating virtue. Yeah, and yeah, which is another interesting term. Who couldn't benefit from cultivating virtue and as you said as juxtaposed to western medicine where the whole premise is avoiding death mm -hmm. Taoism is about being a good person yeah yeah i mean it, it and again you know like when you you brought up the word virtue well in in the in Taoism, virtue like dao der jing meaning the way in virtue virtue is not quite what we think it is in english to the Chinese or the Taoists, I should say, it's a spiritual power. Virtue is what makes the Tao work. So like they say, when you meet a really good teacher and you sense their enlightenment or whatever it may be, you're actually sensing virtue because they have this kind of influence from their being that uh, really is a power. That's why even some, I think, Whaley translated it as the way and the power. Yes. You know, and I think, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, again, you know, Taoism isn't like hung up on morality in the way that we are, the way we think of it. Uh, morality to a Taoist is being a good human being. You know, it's not about these, all these rules and, and things. It's just to be good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, in some ways it is, you know, it exemplifies the golden rule a little bit, you know, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. But I think it goes deeper than that in the sense that it, um, it it's kind of like getting at the core of our spirit. And this is important because it's something that we normally, uh, you know, one of my favorite writers was actually a Catholic monk by the name of Thomas Merton. And Thomas Merton had a statement in his book, Silence, I think The Vows of Silence, where he said, and he got in a lot of trouble for this, when he said, I realized that God is inside me. I'm it. Of course, the Catholic fathers didn't, you know, the Vatican didn't much like that statement <laughs> because they wanted to keep there's believers and there's God and, you know, uh, that whole superior, inferior thing. 
and Thomas Merton didn't accept that. You know, he was basically saying, because he also wrote on the Chuang Tzu, which is interesting. He was basically saying that, you know, I am the Tao. And that's what, you know, a lot in, in within Taoism, which is a funny term, because it's really not an ism. Uh, but the idea is, is that you are it. You know, and it, that's not an, a, an arrogant point of view. It's, it's a, a point of view that everything comes from mind. Now, this is a hard subject because now you start thinking of the cosmos, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea is that you are it. You are at the very, that's where Taoism puts you, right at the center. Because you are also mind. And therefore, all we really need to do is find our way and we see it. And that's, but that's not, you know, the easiest thing. You know, it's kind of like going back to Buddhism again. You know, when somebody asked him, how do I get enlightened? And Buddha said, have the right thought. Well, this is what we're doing. We're all running around studying these things, looking for the right thought. Kind of goes back to the opening of actions and retributions where we're trying to regulate the gates of fortune and misfortune yeah. when we are all one. It is all all the same, all part of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the way I like looking at it is I don't much like, I, I mean, I've learned to discover what I don't like is this, this talk about eliminating self. Taoism really doesn't do that. Taoism finds yourself pretty important. It doesn't, it's not talking about ego as such, but Taoism is finding that, you know, the things that you want to do are pretty important. And you shouldn't just, you know, the, the, there can be this problem that when you start talking about selflessness, it leads to ideas of detachment, et cetera, et cetera. And Taoism doesn't buy into that at all. Just like I was trying to get when we were talking about emotions is, you know, the, the, the people that you care about and you're involved with and you help, et cetera, you need a self to do that. <laughs> you know, I don't like it when people start thinking that, you know, you're, um, Well, let me put it this way: there's a there's a a humor kind of birthday card showing a Zen monk sitting on a, a mat, and in the card it says, "Not thinking of you." <laughs> and, um, <laughs> that kind of you know, I don't think that that helps us. I think we need to think about others, um, you know. And again, you know, it, it's, it isn't that Buddhism is devoid of those things. And when you get into Pure Land Buddhism, compassion is the big thing. Chan Buddhism, it's wisdom. And, you know, uh, in, in Taoism, it's basically comes, you, you 
you cultivate gratitude and appreciation, which makes you compassionate. Yeah. You can't help it. So um, I don't know. I just, I did, like I said, it's these, and Taoism, it's, uh, it's really difficult to, if, you know, the idea of promoting it into our culture. I mean, it's, it's there with, you know, you can't, we're all inundated with Chinese art in one way or another. Can't walk around our world and not see it. There's feng shui, there's Chinese cooking. All these things that, you know, kind of generated out of Taoist early folklore stuff is, it's part of our lives. I mean, even when you say, I'm gonna to go to the cash machine, you just spoke Chinese. The word cash is a Chinese word hmm. coming from string of cash. We borrowed it. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of unique in the sense that I, I kind of look at Taoism as, you know, and I, I really need to get this explained, but there's an old verse in uh, Taoism that says, push the boat and drift with the current. To me, that verse explains Taoism completely. And what it means is push the boat. It means we take an action. You know, we set ourselves on a path. We're going to take that first step of a 10,000 mile journey, as Lao Tzu says. And then we drift with the current. We let it take us to where it's going to go. And we don't resist. We don't interfere. We don't contend. <laughs> you know, we have nonconformity. All those things kind of go with that statement. It's really, you know, way, way, way active non-action. But everything takes an action initially. You know, you and I could have this conversation because first we set it up. There was an active, we pushed the boat, right? Now we're just sitting here talking. Now we're going, now we're drifting with the current. And that's nice. You know, I'm glad we don't have something structured. And, and in life, we find ourselves always trying to manipulate an end result. And they rarely work out. And it usually causes more confusion and destruction. You know, I mean, we see it. We see it every day in our politics, in arguments with religion. You know, I got, you know, I've learned in Taoism, there's three things you try not to discuss with people. And that's religion. The next is politics. And the third is food. Mm. That may sound so odd, but damn, if you, you start talking about food, you can, <laughs> you can really get people upset. <laughs> you know, because, well, yeah. it's like my teacher, Master Leon, he lived to be 102. But, and this is true, I'm not making a joke here at all. He ate two Twinkies every day of his life that I knew him. <laughs> he loved Twinkies. Now, his joke about that was, he once read that Twinkies have a shelf life of 125 years. <laughs> Therefore, if he ate them every day, he had lived that long. He wasn't that incorrect, okay? He did live to be over 100. But the truth of the matter was, is earlier in his life, he was an alcoholic. 
And when you take alcohol out, alcohol is sugar. You need some sugar to replace it. And I know that's what he was doing. He was mm-hmm. just kind of, that was his way of dealing with what his body was craving. And he happened to like Twinkies. A lot of people get up, when I talk about food and stuff, they get upset about that. You know, I remember once he was on the phone and he was going, yes, yes, thank you very much. Yes, yes. And then he hangs up and I go, what was that about? And he goes, now keep in mind, Leong at this point is 89 years old. And he goes, this man that learned from me, he's now 42 years old. And he called me to tell me how I should eat to live long. He goes, <laughs> stupid American, I'm already old. <laughs> he can't tell me how to eat. <laughs> but that's what I mean about food. We get our ideas about what's, you know, and it's like Titi and I, we had this, this Japanese Zen teacher, Taishan. And I asked him one time we were all together and I said, knowing he was a Zen priest, I said, do you, do you ever eat meat? And he went, oh, no, 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 no. And then he pauses and he goes, I, you know, that Japanese, I, he goes, except when I go to my mother. And I'm going, what do you mean with your mother? And he goes, if I go see my mother and she gives me fried chicken, I'm going to eat that fried chicken because she's the one that brought me into this world, took care of me. How am I now so supposed to say your food's not good enough for me? He goes, no, I eat the fried chicken. And he goes, it's quite good. (laughs) And that's, that's, I see, that's when, you know, for me, spiritually speaking, you know, this whole idea of precepts and all these rules, it's better if you live within the spirit of them rather than in the kind of strict adherence to them you know because life is full of change and we got to learn again to be that drift with the current yeah sometimes we're not gonna find ourselves doing what we think is perfect but that's okay you know it's i always tell people you know so so what if you had to take three days off from meditation big deal yeah don't yeah. Yeah, those rules can either set us free or they can imprison us. Yeah, and they do. Yeah, And that's why I don't really like, and it's, again, Taoism in and of itself, if you read the Tao Te Ching and Chuang Tzu, very, the, the idea of rules don't really come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a, a list of things that you have to or not have to do. Uh, basically, it's actions and retributions. Be a good person. Try not to create bad karma. You know, it was like, it's like one of the misgivings in Buddhism when everybody thinks because the Chinese, this idea that, you know, you have to be vegetarian and you have to be celibate. And I followed that. I was celibate for eight years. You know, the vegetarian thing kind of fell apart for me because, you know, the idea that I'm being told that being vegetarian is kind of a spiritual practice. You know, you're more spiritual if you're vegetarian. Mm -hmm. Well, then would somebody please explain Hitler to me? Mm. He was a better vegetarian than most Buddhists. Didn't seem to have that effect on him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, And the idea of, 
you know, celibacy, you know, it's, I don't think it's, you know, again, it was not created because it meant to be a spiritual practice. It's when, especially in Buddhism, when they created monasteries and they separated the men from the, the men, women from men, not because they thought sex was bad because Buddha himself said, do not commit sexual misconduct. He didn't say don't have sex. He's saying don't have sex that creates bad karma, meaning we don't rape, we don't, you know, molest. We, there's lots of things, you know, that create injury and harm to other people. But as long as we're, if, if it's two people that want to be together, that's good karma. And so this whole idea, but celibacy was designed, you know, because I know I lived in a monastery and if everybody was allowed to be intermingling, nothing would get done in a monastery, nothing. <laughs> it's good. We have one side <laughs> for men. When I, I learned to appreciate it when I was there because otherwise you're spending all your time, whether you like it or not, we're sexual beings and we're going to inflict that upon others. So in that regard, I thought that was a really good idea. But in life in general, it's not a good idea to uh, put these kind of strict prohibitions on yourself, whether it's food, sex, whatever. Go with the spirit of it, you know, and uh, be human about it. Then things are better. They, they really are. There's so much... You know, it's like the 250-year-old man. They asked him, do you eat meat? And he said, yes, but he did it differently. He would have pork and chicken, but he would slice it up so thin and put it in his rice because he treated it like it was a flavoring. He didn't understand, you know, the rest of the world getting these big hunks of meat and eating them. And he made this point about, you know, when you sit down to a meal, you know, that normally we're eating the meat first and then we get to our soft food, the vegetables and everything second. And the problem with that, it takes seven days for our intestines to process meat. So you get the meat first, then you eat the vegetables, they get stuck behind the meat and vegetables ferment. And that's why we get gastro problems. Yeah. One so, of my one of my good friends is Taoist scholar Daniel Reed who wrote the Tao of Health Sex and Longevity mm -hmm. and in that he talks teaches very much on that concept of the putrefaction that happens in the intestines when we're not food combining properly and yeah. ways that we can deal with that through in his case he, he was using colonics to help yeah. flush the intestines. Yeah, but again like I said you could talk to 10 different people in this field and nobody's going to be in complete agreement about food. So no. <laughs> you no. just, you, get, you got to kind of like look at it from your own perspective and Absolutely. Do, do what you know is right for you. So anyway. Well, Stuart, I love this. And I, I apologize that I actually have a time limitation. Oh, maybe fine. we can, maybe we can do this again sometime because you have so much to offer. Uh, but before we do go, can you talk a bit about what you've created with the Sanctuary of Tao? A lot of headaches. 
<laughs> it, it's well, no, I mean, Sanctuary of Dallas started out before the pandemic. You know, we used to, we had this really nice house and we would do retreats and we were kind of treating like a sanctuary. And then, of course, pandemic hits. And then everything changes. And now I'm a, I'm a virtual teacher, I guess, for lack of a better word. But the Sanctuary Dow was always meant to be kind of a, an outlet of providing uh, things like learning, whether it's Tai Chi or April Cades or meditation, et cetera. It was always meant to be kind of a, a center for that, uh, you know, and, but it's been, it's just been, it, it's been a, a real battle, you know, partly because it's, uh, it's expensive, you know, and I, I got to kind of look at it realistically. I don't need to spend all this money to build a place so that people will come and learn from me. You know, it kind of should be the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need to, to do that. Uh, right. But the thing about it is, is Sanctuary of Dow has really just, be, really, really has become, for me anyway, a way of me to kind of put out my experiences and what I've learned in a way that I feel really comfortable. See, like I'm doing this internal art alchemy program and we got 20, 30 people in it. And people I would have never met because I'm teaching people in Russia and all over. This is satisfying to me because I get, the, the program is, yeah, I give these talks and then I meet with everybody once or twice a month. So it's like forming friendships virtually. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, that's the way I, that's the way I was taught. TT and I were friends more than anything else. And so it, it, Sanctuary Dow has now kind of made me happy because it's not just about producing my books or you know, videos or DVDs and having retreats, all that kind of stuff. Uh, because I, I have a real distaste for workshops uh, and seminars. Because mm-hmm. truthfully, they you go sign up for one, and somebody like me comes and verbally vomits on you for a couple of days, <laughs> <laughs> and then you're supposed to get something. And I talk to you two years later, and you say, "Oh yeah, I went into the computer business." <laughs> <laughs> but this is a, I, this program goes on for basically three years. Wow! And I, and I get to talk to people frequently, just like I got to with TT. Yeah. And so I'm feeling Sanctuary Dow has changed in the sense that now it's really become this kind of virtual pattern that's comfortable for people because people that wanted to learn from me before always struggled with the idea, well, I'm going to need to save a lot of money to get a flight, hotel, do this, do that. And it was just never going to happen. This made it not only more affordable, but it made it much easier on everybody. And I'm, I'm having a great time with it because it's not much different than what you and I are doing right now. We sit and chat a lot of times and they tell me what they're going through and what they want to learn. And it, it's, it just works much better 
than me getting 30 people into a room for a weekend where then I got to think group. Yeah. I can't think individual. This allows me to think individual. And truthfully, the majority of them, we've become really good friends. That's amazing. Where can people find more about Sanctuary that? Sanctuary. Yeah. Sanctuary. Yeah. Sanctuary.org. Thank you. And your internal alchemy program is there. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And it's, it's working really well for me and for the other people. Uh, I can honestly say that this is, you know, because of the way it's being approached and the way it's being taught, uh, people have just, they said it's like nothing they've done before. Because most people, you know, they're stuck reading books or maybe listening to a teacher for a little while. Uh, but this is one-on-one. Yep. And so it, it makes all the difference in the world to them. So, and that I know that because it was true for me. I had TT, you know? Yeah. I could uh, tackle him in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Todd, this has it, been wonderful. Well, yes, thank I'd be you. happy to do it with you again. Great. And yeah. I know from what we just talked, we got, there's a ton more things. Oh, like. scratch the surface. And your books, are they also available at that sanctuaryofdow.org? No, because sanctuaryofdow.org is a nonprofit. We okay. don't really sell anything okay. other than teaching. For the books, you have to go to valleyspiritarts.com. Valleyspiritarts.com. All now, right. it won't matter which site you go to because you can find a link to either one of them. Um, they're both there. But okay. we had to keep them separate. Uh, we wanted to keep the nonprofit exactly what it's supposed to be. Okay. And yeah, uh, of course, Valley Spirit Arts is the publisher of, of my stuff. So I get to sell it. Um, so anyway, yeah. Well, thank you so much. It has been an absolute joy spending time with you. Oh, I love the stories. I, I look forward to hearing more of them. And I'm definitely going to check out your internal alchemy course. Okay, thank you. Well, it was good to meet you. You and also. You. And you know, just so you know, you do a great job with this. I really like what you do. You're, thank you so much. It, well, it's just nice to be able to talk. You know, yeah. it, I've done a lot of interviews and it's like they have 30 questions and before you finish answering one, they're throwing it because they want to get to all 30. Right. This was nice that we're just able to chat. Great. Well, I start with a blank sheet of paper and whatever inspiration comes to me, I jot down. And in this case, <laughs> I didn't get to many of it because I just got to listen to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Well, you have a good day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Stuart Alvey Olson. For more about Stuart, his work, and mentorship opportunities, please visit sanctuaryofdow.org. That is Dow spelled with a T. To purchase his books, peruse the selection at valleyspiritarts.com. If you are interested in studying Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs, including world's first study options combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. 
If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, open your heart mind to receive sage-like advice from the most unlikely places. <laughs>